Thank you, Brother Chad. If you have a Bible, turn with me, if you will, this morning to Titus chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Titus chapter 3. Really, really appreciate you having me back, Brother Chad. This is exciting. I woke up this morning ready to go. I was excited uh, to come back and be in the pulpit here at First Baptist. Man, I absolutely love the time as the interim a year and a half ago and all the good times we got to have together. And uh, we've been out and about traveling and preaching lots of other places since then. But when he invited me to come back, I just said, absolutely, I'll come. And so thank you for having me back. I do love our church. We love our church. And then you went and did a crawfish boil, and I love you that much more. Amen. How many of you were there last night? I literally ate crawfish until I was stuffed, and I went home a happy man last night. That is always a good thing. Somebody asked me, are you done? Have you had enough for the season? No, I think I could do maybe one or two more of those, and then then I'd be good. So uh, anyway, it is a, a great privilege to, to be here. I love you folks. It's good to see your faces from this angle <laughs> and uh, to have a moment together in the Word. Titus chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Hey, can I just ask you to do something maybe a little different? There's no task that's physical or anything else like that. But just I want to ask you in this moment as I get ready to read the Scriptures, let's go about this with hearts and minds that are eager to hear from God. How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to do this, but how many of you are tired and weary? How many of you need guidance from the Lord? How many of you just want to reflect for a minute on God's grace to us this morning? Then as God's people, as we read, as we pray, and even as I preach and as you listen, let's do so with hearts that are hungry for God, because I don't know about you, but I sure need Him today. So Titus chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Start with me in verse 1. We're going to go through verse number 7. Let me tell you, sorry, before we do that, yeah, let's stand together uh, in honor of God's reading. Let me tell you real quick before I read a little bit about Titus, a few little tidbits. He's a Gentile that comes to faith in Jesus. He is proof positive that the gospel is not just for the Jews, but for Gentiles like us, that God can raise up from anybody, anywhere, servants for himself. This is Titus. Then, in addition to that, Titus gets assigned two of the hardest possible missiological tasks. He has to go work in Corinth, and he has to go work in Crete. These are two of the most pagan cities. They're, they're naughty. They're, they're obnoxious. These are The Cretans in particular were known for this. And so that's where he does ministry. That's where he pastors. And Paul, writing to him as a young pastor, gives them lots of different instructions. Chapter 3, he ends with things he's urging Titus to remind the church of in a context like that. Kind of fits for us in New Orleans, Amen. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says to him, remind them, that's the theme that goes on through this text, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready in every good work. Listen to this one. To speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Then verse 3, he says, For we ourselves also were once foolish and disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice, envy, and hateful, and hating one another. That's who we were. Verse 4. But 
But when the kindness and the love of our God, Savior towards men, appeared, not by the works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Father, we are thirsty. We are hungry to hear, to to consume this morning your word and to be instructed by it. Lord, every last one of us standing here before you today stands as those in need for various things and various challenges that we face, for a wide assortment of distractions, sins or lusts that have enticed us. And Lord, as we pause before you, before the opening of your word, God, we Pray that your spirit would come down and minister to us, that your word would go forth, and that, Lord, through the preaching of your word, the word of God and the spirit of God as it is coming to us now, that, Lord, we would receive it with hungry hearts, and that, God, you do only those things that you can do to make your people strong. Kindle in us, I pray, an affection for you, a love for you, a desire for you, an urgency to live in obedience before you. Lord, form us and shape us and help us to be the people, the men and women that you've called us to be. Lord, this will delight us. This will satisfy us. We pray that, Lord, you be near. In Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. You ever lose sight of things that are essential? Things that are essential. Let me make sure we understand what that word means. Essential doesn't just mean important. It means you have to have it. It's the foundation. It's the core. You ever lose sight of things that are absolutely essential? I, I mean, I do this all the time. I'm a bit, you know, I'm scatterbrained and I'm all over the map and I will get up from my desk at work because I need something in a building across campus and I will go across campus. And by the time I've gotten over there, I'm so ADD that I completely forget the very reason I went over there and go back to my office and sit down at my desk and remember, oh, I went over there to do that, and I didn't do it. You ever do stuff like that, silly stuff like that? We can lose sight of things that are essential sometimes, right? The very purpose for why we're here, and we can miss it with our lives. And we can do it with not only little mundane tasks, we can do it with some really, really big things too, can't we? I mean, for example, institutions like the one I lead We're the kind of people and the kind of organization that if we're not careful and if we're not diligent, we can actually have what we call mission pull. We exist for one single mission, but we get so consumed with lots of really cool things or important things that we actually somehow over time lose sight of the very essential business that we exist to do if we're not careful and diligent. You can do this with your diet. You know, I'm not going to eat this kind of food. I'm just going to eat that kind of food. And then you come to a crawfish boil and there's those brownies that were over there after it was all said and done and we can lose sight of those things, right? You can do it in your budget, right? We really need to buckle down. We really need to crack down. We've got to solve our debt problems or we've got to save money and you're disciplined and you live it that way and you execute for a while and then all of a sudden you lose sight of everything and the next thing you know, you're right back where you started. You can lose sight of the essential things in relationships. 
Show me a marriage that fell apart, that wasn't at its core because ultimately these two lost sight of that which was essential in their relationship, right? You can lose sight of that which is essential. And as Christians, you can also lose sight of what's essential for walking with Jesus, right? I mean, this is why we're here. This is ultimately what our life now is about, is to walk with Jesus and to honor Him and to glorify Him more. That's, that, sounds so, that sounds so objective, right? There's something much more subjective there for us too that's precious. Uh, the, the point and what's important for us is to walk with Him and to be satisfied by Him. And yet, because of all the big things that come to us in our life, you know, financial realities and relational realities and scheduling realities, we can get so caught up in the flow of our lives that we lose sight of that which is essential in regards to our walk with Christ. And so, with that in mind, the Apostle Paul, note how he starts off chapter 3. It's the word, remind. Remind them, Paul, the apostle, urges this young pastor in a pagan land doing hard ministry, remind them. And so what we have here today in chapter 3 are some essentials about what it looks like to walk with Christ. This is not exhaustive. This is not comprehensive. Paul's not going to remind us of everything that we need to have in our minds as we walk with Christ, but he is going to underscore for us once again some of the essential things that we have to remember as we try to walk with Jesus. And so let me point out four things in the text very quickly. Number one, remember your spiritual duties. Remember your spiritual duties. Verse number one and verse number two, listen to how he says this. Remind them, there it is, to be subject to rulers and authorities. This is a hard phrase. It's a hard phrase, not exegetically, not linguistically. In other words, the problem here with that phrase is not some hermeneutical issue wherein we don't know how to interpret it. That's actually pretty easy. What's hard about this phrase is it instructs us in ways that we don't like. And because we don't like it for one reason or another, whether it's a political ideology that it's shaped us most fundamentally, or whether it's a cultural influence that has shaped us most fundamentally, we don't like it because at the core of our being, we want to be autonomous. We don't want anybody telling us what we're supposed to do or how we're supposed to live or where we're supposed to be or what we're supposed to love or what we're supposed to give ourselves to. We want to decide those things ourselves. We all want to be the captain of our own ship. And yet to follow Christ is precisely to bring your life in submission to the Lord Jesus himself. And so the scriptures instruct us to be subject to authorities and to obey. Look, every last one of us has some person or some group that we ourselves are subject to and under their authority. I, for instance... Under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, I am under the authority of my pastor. He has a spiritual authority in my life. I know I'm a pretty high-ranking dude in the Baptist world, but that guy right there has a spiritual authority over me. I have a board of trustees, and guess what I do? Whatever they tell me, right? I have a government Let's be candid, let's be honest. A government that at times I might not like, 
that I might bristle against, that I might disagree with, with every fiber of my being. And then I come to Titus 3, remind them to be subject to rulers and to authorities and to obey. This is not a catch-all. This is not saying that there aren't absolutely any exceptions to this whatsoever, but there is an instruction there to be subject to the rulers and authorities. Look, this is what Paul wants them to see. I want you to just see, and hopefully you'll be able to see it by the time we get done, all the way through verse number 7, how deeply focused Paul is on the nuts and bolts of walking with Jesus in this passage. And interestingly, in a passage where he focuses so much on the nuts and bolts of walking with Jesus, he throws into there, be subject to rulers and authorities and to obey them. Wow. Didn't expect that, but it's there. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities and to obey. Watch this. Remind them to be ready for every good work. You know, one of the things I've had to learn even lately, you'd think walk with Christ a certain period of time, you, there's nothing left to learn. Oh, no, 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 no. Let me, let me tell you where, where I'm at. You know, I, got, I, w- I don't want to say roped in. I get the good fortune of getting to coach baseball for my boys one more time this season. You know what I'm focused on more than anything? Not losing my witness. <laughs> not getting in the flesh, right? But in fact, do the opposite. Not only not lose my witness, but to be a witness. See, I was an assistant coach last year, and one of the things I saw is that with every single kid on that team, they had no gospel influence in their life. Man, baseball practice and baseball games, these are opportunities to put Jesus Christ on display. Every phone call that I make, every email that I receive, man, look, it is so incredibly easy for me to just quickly respond in the flesh instead of responding with a disposition of showing the good works of Christianity and of my Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Apostle Paul says, listen, you be ready for every single good work. In short, this is the same kind of instruction that Jesus gave about the little candle that you don't hide under a bush or a bushel, but you put it up on the hill. You let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your God who is in heaven, right? Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, that the glory of God might be on display amongst us. Listen, I am to approach other people, whether it's in the church or outside the church. And by the way, pause right here for just a second, because if we're not careful, we will get into the habit of coming to church and acting one way and being a donkey outside the church. But yet the instruction of Scripture is to interact with other people always ready for good works, to display Jesus Christ to them. Remind them to be subject to rulers and to authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Verse 2, look, we just got to get ready, buckle up for a second, because he's going to start punching on the heart here. Verse 2, to speak evil of no one. Let me ask you this question. Who do you hate? Don't pretend. Who do you hate? Who's hurt you? Who's mocked you? Who's embarrassed you? Who causes you stress? And therefore is the person, whether it's to their face, 99% chance it won't be. 
or behind their back, 99% chance it will be, that you will say all sorts of vile things about them. And sometimes we say bad things about people without actually using our words. We do it through nonverbal communication. Somebody says something and you look over to your friend and you give the eye roll or something like that, right? You're essentially saying that person's an idiot, right? But now listen, listen. Again, consider your own patterns and behaviors and consider your own ways of talking about other people. Be real. Take an honest inventory about what you actually do for a minute. And then in the backdrop of that actual inventory, what you do, now hear the Word of God. Speak evil of no one. He didn't say your friends or your family or your church members. No, he said no one. That includes that person that you hate or that hates you, or causes you stress, or really just inflames your heart. This is the instruction of God to us, his people. In, by the way, a world so rich with paganism, how could we be witnesses in such a context? Well, the same way that Titus was in Crete, or Corinth, is the way we at FBNO in New Orleans. Imagine how different it looks to people when they receive from us something genuinely different from what they get from other people in the world. Imagine how it looks to them when they expect scorn and ridicule and hostility and and vitriol and all those things, but instead they receive grace, mercy, love, and kindness. Imagine now how their hearts are open to hear us and to listen to us. And in the context of deep brokenness and lostness in their life, they might actually now consider the precious truths of Jesus Christ, which will transform them as he has us. Speak evil of no one. Watch this. Here's more instruction. Remind them, be subject to the rulers and authorities, be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one. Listen to this. Remind them to be peaceable. Wow. Remind them to be peaceable. You know, I don't know everything about church history. I don't know what it's been like at different eras of time. But what I do know is this is a timely word in the year 2022. Where the norm for us, I hate to lump us, the body of Christ, in with the broader us of our culture and our country at large, including people that don't know Christ, but I think we have to. The norm for us is to stir the pot. The norm for us is to inflame hearts and to increase hostility, to engage with people in ways that only amplify and uh, escalate hostilities. And the instruction of the Lord for us is to be a people that are peaceable, meaning to be able to be the kind of people that when we walk into the room, no matter what the tensions might be or the hostilities might be, that as a result of us being there, peace comes. Are we that kind of person? Listen to this verse too. Remind them to be gentle. Wow. Talk about thirst. Talk about a phrase. Talk about an instruction that hits Jamie Dube between the eyes. Because I'm a hard-charging kind of guy. I'm a pretty passionate fellow. I straight shoot. Sometimes I straight shoot in such a way it's not gentle. And that is not Christ-like. 
be gentle. Showing all humility to all men, he says now, to walk before people not as arrogant people, filled with hubris and self-exaltation, but in keeping with Philippians 2, to make ourselves nothing and to think more highly of other people's than ourselves and to look after their interests more than ourselves and to model for them now that which they have not seen but we have in the person of Jesus Christ. He himself, though he was God, humbled himself and made himself nothing, becoming obedient to the form of death, even death on the cross. And they've not seen that we have, and our lives have been changed by it. And now as a result, we show it to them too. But in all humility, first thing Paul shows us here in Titus chapter 3 or reminds us of is our spiritual duty. Second thing he reminds us of just very quickly, he's not just our spiritual duty, but he also wants to remind us or for us to remember who we once were. You remember who you were? Do you, and, and by the way, when I say you were, and for some of us, look, this is going to begin as I dis, explain this and describe this point and the next point because they kind of go hand in glove. You'll see in just a second. As I begin to describe this, you may actually be wondering as I describe this, you know, I don't know that I've ever had that transition. I don't know that I personally have had that kind of, I was this and now I'm this type of moment in your life. That's great. That's fun. I'm so glad you're here. I'm going to explain, and, and maybe this is for you today, but for those of you who do know Jesus Christ, you remember who you once were. That is who you once were before you met him. You remember who you once were before he himself intruded into your life and transformed you. I remember who I was, and you've heard my story. I've told it to you a number of times throughout the interim time. You've heard about my arrest. You've heard about the drugs and the alcohol. You've heard about all that kind of stuff and who I was before I was Christ. But let me tell you what I remember the most. It's not so much the tangible things like the arrests. What I can remember so vividly is the sense of shame, the sense of loneliness, the sense of brokenness, the sense of being cut off from something that I didn't even know or understand. I remember saying to friends, even as a kid who did not grow up in church and did not know the lingo at all or the theological content of what I was saying, I can remember saying to friends, I just feel lost. The Apostle Paul in verse number three now, for we ourselves were also, he wants you to remember who you were. So who were you? You were once foolish. And I look back on the things that I did, the thing, not just the things that I did, the things that I thought, the things that I was willing to give myself to. I mean, literally, it was an upside-down world. That which I thought was good is actually bad, and that which I thought was bad was actually good. And in foolishness and in darkness of heart and mind, I embraced it. You know how that goes. You embrace something that's not true or you embrace, embrace something that's not real. It will always lead to destruction. And it did for me too. It will always lead to that emptiness, that loneliness, that isolation. We were once foolish. We were once, watch this one, disobedient. Now this is important. Let's tie that word, that comparison of who we once were, disobedient, back to verse 1 in that 
first startling, unexpected instruction to be subject to rulers and authorities and be obedient to them. Remember that? I once was disobedient, most fundamentally to the Lord Himself, but also to any structure or any hint of someone who was going to tell me what I could or could not do. I was disobedient to the Lord. I I wanted nothing, wanted nothing to do with his life or his call or his ministry on my life. I was deceived. You know what it's like to be deceived, right? It's that it connects with that concept of foolishness, which by the way, just real quick, anytime you're reading Pauline literature in particular, you'll notice that Paul uses a lot of different phrases at times. He'll give out lists And they're not always neatly distinct from each other, but often the concepts overlap with each other. This concept of deceived obviously overlaps with being foolish, right? We're deceived because we think that this is good when it's actually bad, and that's bad when it's actually good. The economics of the pagan lost world are completely upside down from God's world and what God intends his people to do and to be, and what is truly valuable and what is truly good. We were deceived. The devil tricked us into thinking that this sin right here will ultimately please us, because that's why we sin, right? Consider your sin historically. Why'd you do all that stuff? Consider your sin presently. Why are you doing all that stuff? Is it not because you want it? Is it not because it entices you? And think about that. Entices you to what? What's it hooking you? What's it it promising to give you in that moment? It's essentially, whether your mind would say it this way or not, it's essentially fooling you into thinking that this thing right here will make you happy. But as I've said to you before, it's like drinking the ocean water, isn't it? It'll make the thirst go away for a moment, but it will come back with greater problems. It will leave a deeper hole. We're deceived who is who we once were. We were serving various lusts and various pleasures. We were, some translations say we were slaves to various pleasures and lusts, because that's really the truth of it, isn't it? When we're lost and have not been liberated by Jesus Christ himself, we are enslaved and in bondage to our own sin. Those desires and those enticements are not just desires and enticements, are they? They are handcuffs. They are chains. They are bondage. That's who we once were, right? We were living in malice and envy. That means our hearts were filled with badness and jealous of everything else. We were hateful and we hated one another. Paul wants to say to Titus, remember your spiritual duties, but also remember who you once were before you came to Jesus. Look, why is that important? Why is that what, what I would call an essential thing for us? That's where the message started. Remember that? I said, sometimes we forget the essentials. Why is remembering who you once were essential? Simple. Because if you don't remember who you once were, you will not currently, presently cherish Christ, the liberator and the redeemer of us all. If you're don't remember who you once were, you'll be inclined to think that your spiritual strength is coming from you. It's not. Brother, sister, don't ever be deceived into thinking that somehow you got this because you don't. 
When we remember where we were, when we remember who we were, there's something about that memory that postures our heart and our soul before him properly. And now the Spirit of God is at work in our lives, and there's strength, and there's nearness. Remember, brothers and sisters, who you were. Remember, number one, your spiritual duties. Remember, number two, who you once were. Remember, number three, who and how you were changed. Remember how you were changed and remember who changed you, Paul shows us here. Verse number four, one of the most beautiful words, especially in Pauline literature because he loves it. Paul loves what we call a juxtaposition. You say, what's that? That's a fancy word for comparison. That's all it means. It means that you show what this was and then this is. It's almost like a pros and cons list, only normally it's about those who are in Christ and those who are not. He often will describe the way we were. He does the same thing that he does here in Titus chapter 3 in Ephesians chapter 2, for example. The first four verses, he essentially unloads on who we once were, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers. We were by nature children of wrath. Those are some of the things I remember him saying there. And then he says, but... Well, Paul's doing the same thing right here. This is who you once were before you came to Jesus. And now, but, most beautiful word, here comes the juxtaposition. Now watch who you are. Remember who saved you or changed you and how it happened. Paul describes that very process in verse number four all the way through verse number six and into verse seven. But, he says, despite who you once were, watch this, when the kindness, stop right there. God didn't have to do this. God would have been completely righteous and holy to leave us be. But in his kindness, because that's who he is, he redeemed us. But when the kindness and the love of our God, stop right there. Can you imagine this? We're so used to hearing it. We have so cliched it. We have so bumper stickered it the love of God, that is, that we're so used to it. It's so normal to us. We take it for granted. We give it no thought. We can mention the love of God in our context, and it doesn't stir our affections or anything. But pause now to consider the gravity and the reality behind it. This is almighty God we are talking about, the holy, righteous one, the one with all power. This is a God that we would expect when we think of him that way, which is right, by the way, We would expect him to be indifferent towards us. And in fact, most theological systems that aren't Christian theological systems throughout world history, when they've contemplated a God like that, they typically do see God as being utterly indifferent, right? A God that is powerful and great, but doesn't care for little dirt bags like us, but not Christ, not the God of Christianity, not the true God, the living God. This God loves us. And that, brothers and sisters, ought to knock you out of your chair. We ought to be so dumbfounded by the reality that God loves us. And it causes us to pause for a minute and consider how wonderful, how humbling, how amazingly true this is for us. And here's what Paul's saying, when that kindness and when that love from God showed up, 
in our lives, when the kindness and the love of our God and Savior towards man appeared, when that love came down to us. And watch verse number five, how it comes down. He makes it clear. You want to know how it comes down? He starts off with a negative. In other words, he's going to show us how it does come down, but he first shows us how it doesn't come down. When this love and kindness appeared, not by works of righteousness, which you and I have done. There's a great correlation and a great overlap between, as I've already referenced, Ephesians chapter 2 here, right? We were aliens and strangers, but when the grace of God entered in our lives, Paul would go on to say, for by grace you are saved, not by your good works, right? He says it again here, not by the works of righteousness which we have done. Meaning that the way you have been connected to God, the way that you and I have been found sons and daughters to the Most High King, the way that you and I have entered into the promises as heirs of those promises is not because we were diligent being good boys and good girls. Because the Bible says you could never, ever get it that way. In fact, the Bible goes on to say, and if you could get it that way, then everything Jesus Christ did for us was not a waste of time, right? Galatians chapter 2, verse number 21, for if righteousness can come through the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Romans chapter 4, verse number 4, for that which was counted as works are not counted as grace to them, but as debts to him who works. It's not counted as a grace, but as a debt. In other words, the things that I do, if I did depend on it, I'd be ultimately saying, God, yeah, I know you died for me, but that doesn't mean a whole lot. I can do it better. And ultimately, it won't count for us. It will count against us. Isaiah tells us that all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. So how did we get it? Not by the works of righteousness, which we have done, but watch this. But according to his mercy, he saved us. And how did he do this? Through the washing of regeneration. What is that? What is regeneration? It's when you take something that was dead, by the way, once again, Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses. By the washing of regeneration, regeneration is when God takes something that was dead and brings it back to life. And that's us. That's what's happened to me. Somebody that was dead in my trespasses. You, someone dead in your trespasses. But when you came to Christ, the Spirit of God so invades us that that which was dead becomes alive again. By the renewing, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, which He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, and having been justified by grace. Now, Point two was remember who you were. Point three is now going to be remember how you were saved and who saved you, right? So I said a few minutes back, as I described this, some of you may be sitting there going, well, you know, I don't know that I've ever had that sort of, this is who I was and now this is who I am in Jesus Christ kind of moment. That's awesome. Great. Glad you're here. Let me explain this to you. God loves you. And that's really good news because you just like me, are a sinner. And our sin offends God. It distances us from God. It cuts us off from Him. And because of that cutting off, if we died that way, it'd go on forever and ever and ever and ever. But God loves you. Jesus Christ, His Son, came into this world to pay the debt that I owe, to take the punishment that I deserve, 
And the Bible says when I throw myself onto Jesus Christ, he forgives, cleanses, and redeems. He regenerates and he renews by mercy and by grace. I become a son. If you're here today and you've never done that, today. Fourth thing, real quick. Remember, first of all, our spiritual duties. Remember, second, who you were. Remember, third, how and who it was that changed you. And remember, fourthly, our eternal hope. Now, this is where he ends in verse number seven, right? Having been justified by his grace. Here it is. Watch this. Here's the fourth point today. We should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, look, let's not think about our salvation and our and heaven for us so one-dimensionally. Let's certainly not think about it wrong. Look, I mean, heaven is not what we anticipate, I fully expect. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That it has not been revealed tells us we really don't have a strong sense other than to know it's awesome and it has something to do with us being made whole. It does not have to do with great shopping malls to go and enjoy. It does not have anything to do with baseball fields to be played in, all these dinky little things that this world comes up with. No. Imagine a place where we're made whole, where these bodies that are broken and sinking a little bit more every year now are made whole and right. Imagine a place where our hearts don't hunger and thirst for that which ultimately consumes and destroys us. Imagine a place where we behold the Lamb in such a way that just the vision of Him and the sight of Him is enough to satisfy us for all of eternity. And Paul now says, remember, this is the truth for us. We become heirs with Him. We inherit those things. I'm really glad because, listen, I come from a bloodline where I'm not going to inherit anything on this side. But I have much to inherit there. And here's, here's the way I want us to think about this. This is not just, oh, by the way, a little reminder, we're all going to heaven when we die. How, not wrong, but dinky, one-dimensional. Is that it? Here's the hope. Here's what it means for us right now. It means that in the labor and the toil, in the trial and the hostility and the difficulty that we face now, listen to me, this is what it means for us. It means that we live in these moments as people investing in a later hope. For each of us probably likely has some kind of savings plan or retirement plan and we're all looking forward to that day where we can retire on on earth and and just, you know, have every day as a Saturday. For the record, I'm cool with this too. I like this idea. But there's a greater investment my life is to make. There's a greater deposit my life is to make and it's not for something on this side, it's for something on that side. There's the reminder to the Christian, hear me, that there is a kingdom that's coming and our lives are to live for that kingdom, to invest in that kingdom. Why would we live for it here in the now? Think about all the charms and the pleasures that would entice our souls. We live to be rich, and we live to be famous, and we live to be powerful. And as I've likely reminded you before, you can accomplish all those things, and then when your life on this side is over, here is a promise to you. This world will forget you. It'll forget your name. It'll forget your legacy. It will be as though you were not. Why chase that? How sad. How sad. 
to spend your entire existence on this side chasing something that's a vapor and will be gone. Or we can live our lives for a kingdom that's to come. We can invest and deposit in that which is to come, a kingdom that's coming that will not pass away, a kingdom where the things we do on this side make an eternal difference in the lives of people, where Christ is maximally glorified and in Him and in that we are maximally satisfied. And on that day, when the hardships that we face and the sacrifices that we may make here, on that day when we stand and behold Him, we will realize that every tear was worth every bit of it. It's essential. It's essential that we change gears of our mind and change gears of our heart and redirect the appetites of our heart and redirect the work of our hands and redirect the thrust of our life to be not about this, but about that. It's essential. So, brothers and sisters, remember our spiritual duty as followers of Jesus Christ. Simply say this as I wrap it up. This world stands in desperate need of seeing a people like that. Remember who you were. Remember who and how you were changed. And remember the eternal hope and live for that. Father, we thank you and we love you. Lord, I simply pray, make it so. In our lives, we give ourselves to you. We want, we desire above everything else to please you and to be satisfied in you. So give us grace and help and strength to that end. We love you in Jesus' name.